This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you Food Week. All this week on my Time Zone show, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. Listen live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or of course, download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, we're looking at the nanny state. Should the nanny state be policing what you put in your shopping basket? And why is the government on things like banning bog-offs? And so I want to talk about that in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's kick off with today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. The new independent on Sunday. Are you getting the full story? Yes, there's a special treat. We're going to get the full story from my former independent on Sunday colleagues. Jane Merck's here. Hello, Jane. Hello. And Matthew Bell. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Uh, now, where do you two stand on the big question of the day? We're asking for food week this week. Real milk versus fake milk. Jane? It's got to be real milk. I mean, I can't have a cup of tea with fake milk. I, I did try oat milk once on cereal, which was fine. But I, I mean, I have a nut allergy, so I can't have all the almond business anyway. But you just need, with, with tea, Yorkshire tea, real milk in second. I don't want to add an, another layer to this debate, but you ha- the milk has to come in second after the tea bag. No, it's all right. We did, we did tea and coffee yesterday, so it's fine. It's all, all joined up. Matthew, where do you stand on this big, important issue which is dividing the nation? Well, I'm glad we're really milking this subject. For oh, well. <laughs> right, cut <laughs> off. <laughs> but I'm sorry to say I'm with Jane on this. It's got to be full fat, probably organic, I'd say, milk. Ooh, oh, fat. You're so yeah, independent what? on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you can take the boy out of the independent on the Sunday, but you can't take the independent. Of course it's organic. Of course it is. Got to be organic. I mean, it does taste better. I don't know if you've noticed. If you have the cheap um, milk, it, it definitely doesn't taste as good but i've tried all the other ones the almond milk the soy milk uh, the cashew milk the, i mean they're, they're 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 getting better but they are still revolting cashew milk that's not a thing how do you I mean, milk a cashew well you need about i think it's about 80 gallons of water small teats. Uh, <laughs> and they're trodden by the children of tiny you know, the, the feet of tiny children somewhere <laughs> um and it's very expensive and, and and, but, and still tastes revolting and isn't even good for you. But um, I'm sure someone's making some money out of it. Now, so I should explain that we've asked, we did ask uh, YouGov to poll this important question of uh, of the milk. 81% prefer real milk. 
Only 9% fake milk. Uh, uh, 10% said neither. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's, I was quite about only 9% preferring fake milk. And I was just like, God, they're a noisy 9%, aren't they? Every coffee shop you go in, there's somebody ordering as a moat thing. Um, the uh, levers, much eighty-four uh, percent say uh, real milk. Remainers, only seventy-seven percent. Both, you know, uh, living up to stereotype. Men more likely to before for for real milk over fake milk. Uh, women more. Eleven uh, percent of women say fake milk. Seven percent of men. Uh, young people. Oh no, twenty-five to forty-nine-year-olds like the fake milk, and so do people in Scotland and people who voted for for Jeremy Corbyn. Again, uh, living up to um, to stereotypes. Now, I thought we could broaden this this conversation slightly more. We're not going to spend the next half an hour just talking about who likes milk, uh, but it got us thinking about the politics of milk, and most memorably, Thatcher, the milk snatcher. Now, most parents can afford to provide their own children with milk or to give them money to buy milk. They can't, in fact, provide the school buildings. That's my job, and I think it's rather more important that that job should be carried out by me with the help of the rates than that we should have all school milk on rates. Now, I think, Jane, you're, you're too young to have been directly affected by Thatcher the Milk Snatcher, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. But I, do, I am old enough, actually, to remember we used to get pyramids of milk in school in the early 80s. And they always seemed to curdle. They were left outside the back of the, the caretaker's office. Do you office mean the bottles the were in pyramids? No, the, the, it was cardboard pyramids. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not imagining this. And you'd stick a little straw in and you'd have it at break time. This was the early 80s in Liverpool. I don't know whether it was a it was a Liverpool council were adding the milk because the Thatcher had taken it away. I don't know. But we, it was disgusting. The milk was always too, um, it was slightly off. But, but bigger point, obviously, I mean, where Thatcher was wrong was that you have to do both. And in fact, ironically, she cut funding for school buildings and, um, you know, the Labour government had to put loads of money in to, to rebuild the schools. I mean, also, if, you know, talking about school buildings... In Liverpool in the 80s, we drank our pyramids of milk and then we went into mobile classrooms because the classrooms were, the buildings were falling down. So that was my experience of um, of 80s education. But the pyramids of milk were really weird. <laughs> <laughs> so so just in terms of the politics, so, so free milk in schools uh, were introduced in 1944. Uh, free school milk to all children under 18 uh, were introduced in 1946. Uh, then uh, Edward Short, uh, who was the sec- Labour Secretary of State for Education in 1968, withdrew it for children over 11. Then Margaret Thatcher withdrew it for children over the age of seven, so when she became Thatcher the Milk Snatcher. And then Shirley Williams, as a Labour Education Secretary, withdrew the milk for children between uh, five and seven. So actually, Labour was guilty of this as the Tories, Matthew, but, it's, but maybe it's because Thatcher rhymed with Snatcher. Well, probably that's probably what it was. But it is, it's a very emotive subject, milk, because um, we all drink it from, you know, from day one. I've got a six-month-old baby who's just been drinking nothing but milk for the first six months of his life. And there is something about, there's a very sort of nostalgic feeling about, Jane mentions milk at school. And I remember being at school in the 80s and being given, uh, you know, those nice little round plain biscuits and, a, and a part, I think it was a quarter pint of milk. Oh, we never milk. had biscuits. Oh, posh, wasn't it? Or were they organic? Were they like Dutchies originals? <laughs> of course they were. Yeah, um, <laughs> only the best. Um, no, but, we, but, but you know, it was it, it was part of your everyday ritual of, as a you know going to primary school. And this was a, a local primary school. We had our milk in the morning in the playground, and then in the evening we'd get home and um, and and the milk had been delivered, but we you know we hadn't bothered to bring it in, and all the birds had pecked the lids off and it had gone off. 
Uh, but we still had the milk delivered by the you know the electric milk float that came round. So I think there is something very sort of nostalgic and emotive about milk, and I can see why politicians see it as a useful subject. But you've got to be so careful not to become the milk snatch. You've got to give away milk to everyone for free uh, to get their votes, and you've got to support the dairy industry in Britain and make sure that you know farmers are happy and that there are cows in the fields, and we're not importing milk from Brazil. So it, it's a it's a huge political football which which you can make a lot of political capital out if you're clever um but i mean the, but in, the, the milk industry is it's very interesting because in fact um milk prices famously have been very low for years but as a, as a result of that um there's been such a backlash that now dairy farmers are making more money than i think ever before um so there's been a renaissance in in proper old-fashioned milk which i should think brexiteers would want to um make some capital out of which you know if we want to be a self-sufficient island we need to have lots of dairy farmers providing our own milk and not importing milk from from beastly Europe, um, as they would see it. Well, if that, actually, I mean, I was looking at this. There have, been, there have been, in the last few weeks, been protests across Europe by farmers. Serbian farmers protested for two days after they didn't, uh, after meeting with the government over concerns about the prices they got in Spain. When was this? Uh, a couple of months ago, Spanish farmers dumped 400,000 litres of milk in protest over, over prices. So, I mean, it, yeah, it is a very evocative thing, isn't it? It's because everyone can sort of understand. And actually, you know, one of the big uh, problems we've got is the supermarkets really control the price. And because they want to use it as a loss leader in, in the shops, they end up really squeezing the prices they're paying for it. Anyway, that was the politics of milk. Uh, let's talk about the politics of uh, people uh, stealing milk and other items, maybe steak and wine, apparently, as well, um, from shops on the front page of The Times today. Prolific shoplifters will be targeted with mandatory jail sentences for repeat offences and a greater use of facial recognition by police and retailers. Um, Matthew, do you think this will work? Well, I don't. I mean, I have to say, I have a, it's, it's terrible to say it, but I have a tiny bit of admiration for successful shoplifters because I find it so <laughs> frightening, the idea of taking anything from a shop. Um, but I can't do it myself. But, you know, people who <laughs> shoplift... Well, OK, a lot of them are, are teenagers who are rebelling. But the, the people who are really shoplifting are people who are doing it out of necessity, I should think. I don't think... Hardened criminals are stealing a pint of milk or even a steak because you, you can't make any money on that on the on the black market afterwards. So the people who are shoplifting are people who are in need, and I think it's a it's a desperate um, sign of how um, heartless this government has become that they're going to go after these people by threatening a, a jail sentence, which seems excessively draconian. When what we should be doing is providing free um, essentials, free basic food, uh, and, and encouraging supporting food banks and supporting the poorest in our communities rather than frightening them with uh, prison sentences. Um, but of course, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not saying, I'm not advocating uh, shoplifting by any means. And if you're a small shopkeeper, it's obviously a big problem. But um, I don't think the, the government should be throwing any resources, especially when our prisons are already overflowing. Um, and I, I would say a shoplifter is probably a, quite a cunning kind of criminal. I don't think you want to put him into prison. Um, he'll, he'll find ways around um, um, you know, he, he, you don't want that's not yeah. Well, I mean, the striking thing I thought actually because we had um, Mark Rowley, the the Met Commissioner, on the show uh, a week or so ago, and I asked him about exactly this because of the suggestion that you know basically there was a license to shoplift because they were never caught. Actually, if you look at the stats in this time story, um, the police recorded three hundred and forty thousand cases of shoplifting in the past uh, in the twelve months to March. British Retail Consortium so there were eight million cases. Only 48,000 uh, of those uh, recorded by the police resulted in charges, just 14%. So even on the police's 
uh, records. Only 14% um, ended up uh, um, resulting in any sort of charge. So you could increase the the, the, far, the the penalties if you want to, but if the police don't have the resources or the time or the you know, all the inclination, the inclination to go and investigate them to catch anyone. It's a bit, it's a bit sort of, is it just a bit of nonsense for recess, Jane? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I agree with Matthew as well that the the, the driver of this is is more likely to be people who are desperate enough to, you know, slip a packet of cheese into a bag because they can't afford the cheese. It's, you know, inflation is still very high. But I think at every level in the criminal justice system, as you say, resources are really tight. It's not just about the policing. I mean, they've got enough to do. They're having to sort of cut back on. They can't attend every burglary, as we're, as we're told. But also the criminal justice system, massive backlogs in the courts um, due to COVID. There's a huge thing. And then also, I think, as you said, the prisons, you know, where are these new prison places that are already overcrowded? Where are these new prisons going to come from? I think there was a minister on this morning saying that they could build new prisons. I mean, it just feels like a lot of sort of effort to tackle something that, I, I, unless I'm mistaken, I think the retail industry does factor in a little bit of attrition, a little bit of loss into yeah. their accounts because mm. it's such a huge thing. Food Week continues. We're still joined by Jane Merrick and uh, Matthew Bell. But uh, we can now uh, also uh, bring into the conversation uh, Matthew's other half, Amber Guinness, who is a cook and food writer. Hello, Amber. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, right. So, uh, first of all, tell us about um, your experience of cooking with your other half. How is Matthew as a cook? If you're a professional, are you constantly trying to push put him right? Well, I, this is the trouble, I think, if one of you is a professional, because the other one always thinks you're trying to put them right, when actually you're just showing kind of professional curiosity of, oh, that's interesting, that's how you're doing it, whereas they hear it as... Oh, that's interesting. That's how. You're doing it. <laughs> and I'm then the sorry, but there is no way that the sentence. Oh, that's interesting. That's how you're doing it. Isn't <laughs> taken as a hostile act. Well, exactly. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> um, uh, Matthew, is Amber actually any good? Well, no, she is, of course. And what the, the best thing about being married to a, a food writer is that she's always testing out recipes. So there are these huge cakes I have to eat, and uh, you know, mountains of. stuff. Steak, whatever but the, the no it's i i try and exert my um my independence and say i'll cook dinner tonight and um i'll knock up something that i think is reasonably good um and it's just a small chipping away the undermining of one's confidence you know that um the sort of the arched eyebrow afterwards and saying and oh, are you sure that you wanted to add that much uh whatever it was um but but no i was very good at encouraging me and i think uh, what we've got some friends who we've, we've observed over the years and they've managed to carve up They've literally halved the responsibilities in the kitchen. So it's one person's peeling the potatoes, the other person's, you know, uh, filling the pan for the water. And and they've found a system of do, of doing it harmoniously without the squabbles. But we have yet to uh, uh, succeed. Yeah, collaborative cooking is not our forte, I don't think. But my way, my way of dealing with it is sort of encouraging Matthew to add dishes to his repertoire that I love eating but hate cooking. So then I'm just so grateful. Like what? So go on then, Amber. What, what falls into that category? Uh, I don't, do you know about huevos rotos? It's like delicious, just like a pan filled with like fried onions, potatoes, cracked eggs in there, which is like a mess to make, but it's really yummy. But it's incredibly easy. So she sort of patronisingly gives me the easy dishes and says, darling, that's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, say that, say that again, just to, just to reconfirm <laughs> that you are the poshest people we've had on the show. Um, <laughs> what's it called, Amber? Huevos rotos. Huevos, what? I'm going to look it's, it up. It's like, it's like Spanish egg and chips. 
Right. Tell you how to cook it. You, Ooh, you get a potato, you chop it up. Yeah. You get an onion, you chop it up, and you throw them in a frying pan. When they're nearly cooked, you chuck in an egg, and it sort of breaks on top. And actually, it looks a mess, but it's delicious. <laughs> Are you sold, Jane? It, yeah, it sounds it sounds really nice. I mean, um, I think it, it's what I think the the key is to know your strengths, isn't it? I mean, I've my um ex was a re- is, is a really good cook and i'm the gardener so i used to provide the oh, vegetables nice. for the um, yeah. thing um but he's he's from he's from north yorkshire and he comes to this amazing he has this amazing kitchen garden in north yorkshire so <laughs> and they would produce this sort of huge artichokes and asparagus and then my little pathetic asparagus spears from my south london allotment would be <laughs> would be presented to the kitchen and he'd look and say oh, they're not very big and um so but it, it, but um I, I'm really good at making, I'm not a great cook because I used to leave it to him, but now I have to cook for myself and my daughter, but I'm really good at doing a roux and he, and he can't, he couldn't make a roux to save his life. So I would, he, if he ever needs to make a cheese sauce, I was on roux duty. <laughs> and I was <laughs> You're on building blocks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sort of, it's knowing your strengths and not, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't interfere. I would just let him do it. And he was such a good cook anyway, that, you know, I'd, I'd just eat the food that I'd grown on the allotment. Matthew, would you know how to make a roux? Uh, well, I do now. I, I believe it's... Is it flour and milk, Amber? Is that right? Butter. Uh, butter. butter, crucially. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just going to have, like, wallpaper. But actually, paste. this is the annoying thing about being married to professionals. Is she'll say things like, OK, what you do is just quickly make a bechamel, and then, then you do things like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? And she's like, <laughs> um, so she's so far ahead of, you know, the language, even. Of, I don't even know what she's doing half the time. But, um, but no, we, I mean... I, I did woo her with food, I believe, uh, um, yeah. except I didn't know at the time she didn't eat um, fish. So I kept making things like um, kedgeri and um, yeah, smoked uh, kippers and salmon en croute. Um, and then it took about <laughs> two months of this courtship before she said, actually, I, I don't eat fish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's loved if you're willing to do that. And what about this? There's another interesting question about how do you get children to improve their eating habits? So yesterday... Uh, on the show, we had the Conservative MP Robert Goodwill, um, who was explained to me that he thinks parents should be much stricter. You've got to eat some broccoli, otherwise you won't get any dessert. And and I think parents need to be fairly tough with their children, ensure that they don't sort of live on a diet of, of snacks and crisps and chocolate. What about that? Do you think that that worked, Jane? Everyone should eat their vegetables. Oh no! I mean, I'm I'm the least strict parent anywhere in the world, but. I think it's, as soon as you start to sort of introduce a punishment around food, it's really bad. So, like, instead of saying broccoli is the punishment so you can have an ice cream, you just then, you make it you make it turn into a positive and you say broccoli is, you know, it's going to make you feel, um, you know, more awake or it's going to give you more energy. And you and it's probably also the way you cook it. You don't overboil it to death. But if they don't like broccoli, then you go for peas or you go for, I mean, my daughter hated fruit for, for years, but she loved artichokes <laughs> growing in my allotment. <laughs> And, uh, Another independent on Sunday they, trip there. <laughs> <laughs> it's what it's whatever they um you know whatever they like, but don't turn don't sort of laden a food with a punishment because they of course they're not going to like it. Matthew, where do you stand on broccoli? Well, um, I've discovered this brilliant recipe where you fry it um, instead of boiling it, and you add a bit Ooh. of garlic, and it makes it really sort of sexy and delicious. And then you add some pasta, and you've got a, a sort of great um, winter. Uh, a pasta dish, isn't that right? One of Amber's creations, in yeah, fact. Yeah, and I can yeah. do that one, yeah, just about, with can. supervision. <laughs> <laughs> but so, it's interesting leading on with Jane's point about, you know, food and punishment, because, you know, Matthew saying he made me fish and I saying I didn't eat it, it's because when I was a child, I was sat there 
hours forced to eat oh, this like, yeah. cold you pasta bake, tuna pasta bake, which scarred me for decades. Yeah, that sort of just sitting there, you're not getting down until you've cleared your plate. Um, yeah. Amber, is, is Matthew basically suggesting that what you've discovered is you can take anything and if you fry it, uh, <laughs> it's more delicious? <laughs> well, the key bit, it's got to be fried, there's got to be garlic, possibly a bit of chilli, and then it's always yummy. Just almost anything, though, if you take it and batter it, <laughs> fry it, lovely. Russell sprouts, that's another good one. Yeah, that's great, fried. Perfect. And your cook, but your your book is called uh, A House Party in Tuscany, Amber. So go on then, just for the last minute, paint a picture. If we're all coming round to your house with Independent on Sunday reunion, what, <laughs> what is on the Bell Guinness table? Um, so it's normally laden with a few, you know, lots of dishes. I like to have a little bit of everything. So there'll be a big pasta dish, there'll be a massive salad, there'll be some grilled, grilled veg. It's all pretty healthy, warming, um, kind of generous food I would say um there's often a, like a tart which might have tomatoes mascarpone a bit of thyme on there oh, lovely um what else is on there Matthew what's, um, what's Matthew going to be allowed to do in this <laughs> well I like the sausage pasta that's a really greedy one I mean Amber's basically quite greedy so she um you know, <laughs> she pretends about those grilled vegetables but actually lots of cream and oh lovely yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. The the sausage one is delicious. So it's sausage sausages fried, cooked in a frying pan with uh, onions, a bit of garlic and chili, bay leaves, wine and cream, and lots of parmesan, and that's very delicious. I mean, who doesn't like wine, cheese, and sausage? Jane Merrick and Matthew Bell, though, and of course you can read the stories we're discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description and get yourself a Times subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the nanny state in your shopping basket. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Whatever. It's not about the nanny state. And I'm like, whatever. Nanny state. The nanny state. Nanny state policy. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm not normally a believer in nannying or bossying type of, uh, of, of politics, but the reality is that obesity is one of the real comorbidity factors. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Because this is my United States of 
Yeah, we're talking about the nanny state of whatever. Uh, the nanny state is a term we hear a lot from politicians, especially when talking about food. But there's a real tension between libertarians on the one hand who think we should be able to do what we like. Well, on the other hand, being quite enthusiastic about policing what is in other people's shopping baskets. The Tory MP Robert Goodwill demonstrated on the show yesterday. You just need to go into the supermarkets and see sometimes what people have got in their trolleys and then see, you know, those people might be sort of slightly overweight and think, well, no wonder you're overweight. Look what you've bought. Wow. Uh, now, politicians therefore flip-flop between t- letting us eat what we like and wanting to crack down on what is in our food and how we buy it. You buy one, you get one free. I said you buy one, you get one free. Yeah, a crackdown on buy one, get one free deals was due to come into force in October last year, then October this year, and a couple of weeks ago, Rishi Sunak delayed it again until October 2025. The Prime Minister said, I firmly believe in people's right to choose, and at a time when household budgets are under continuing pressure from the global rise in food prices, it's not fair for government to restrict the options available to consumers on their weekly shop. But... With a quarter of adults in England alone currently classed as obese, the big debate remains. Should the government be responsible for what we eat? How big should the nanny state be? Well, Henry Dimbleby, who's a co-founder of the Leon restaurant chain, he was the government's food strategist. He quit his role over the government's failure to implement any of his suggestions. I spoke to him just after he resigned and asked him what levers can be pulled to change the fact that the West is getting fatter. There are two things that need to happen. One is kind of doing something to break that commercial incentive, and the other is about culture. On the commercial incentives, the advertising, restricting advertising, is probably, of all the measures they were considering, the most powerful one. It is a no-brainer. No one wants their children to be advertised as stuff. They should ban it. And actually, the studies show that rather small reductions in calories could have a huge effect. Restricting bog-offs, I actually think it's not politically possible now, but at some point we should expand the sugary drinks tax to a sugar and salt reformulation tax. Those things actually could, combined, have a huge effect. Alongside that, you need to change culture. So we need to... Uh, teach people to cook again. We, it, it, there's a lot of evidence to show that in communities, if you work with people to teach them how to shop, teach them how to cook, you can impact obesity that way. Henry Dimmel there, the co-founder of the Leon restaurant chain, who resigned as the government's food strategist. So let's talk, talk, first of all, about the health problem. How big a obesity crisis are we facing? Times Health correspondent Eleanor Hayward is here with me. Take us through the scale of the problem, first of all. So it's enormous in terms of the strain obesity is placing on the NHS and on the wider economy. Um, Like you said, one in four adults are obese and two-thirds in total are either obese or overweight. And if someone's obese, they cost the NHS about twice as much as someone who's a healthy weight. And that's because they you sort of accumulate other conditions um, the more obese you are, things like type 2 diabetes, heart disease. And that, in turn, costs more in terms of GP appointments, hospital treatment. And as we know, the NHS is in a pretty terrible state as it is. So if this problem keeps on rising, there's real, real questions about how the NHS would be able to cope. And what's interesting is that the, the government, therefore, says, you know, there's clearly a financial imperative as much as anything else, and maybe a moral bond would be better if people were healthier. And yet, as we were just saying there from Henry Dimbleby and, you know, Rishi Sunak before, you know, yes, we should be doing something, but probably not now. It's probably not a good time now. But is there, is there ever a good time? Because ultimately, it is going to mean saying to people, you shouldn't be doing that or making things prohibitively expensive. 
Yeah, there's, there's two main factors stopping, which they say is why now is not a good time. And the first is the cost of living crisis. Yeah. Um, it's very diff- difficult politically to introduce restrictions on what people can buy while prices are so high. And also there's quite a big political debate about personal freedom, nanny statism. And the Tories are really reluctant to get, fall into that trap before the next election. So Boris Johnson announced this huge obesity strategy which was hailed as really weird really promising by experts and then it's pretty much all been abandoned because he did that immediately after he was ill with covid yeah. wasn't it and he was picked, you know he filmed himself going jogging and saying he'd given up cheese and whatever else as an immediate like oh actually it turns out being overweight was a health issue then you know as time's gone on it sort of withered a bit yeah it was it was one of the first things to go when he came under pressure politically because it's seen as something that's for all politicians it's really really hard to push through because it's something that will take decades, bringing down obesity, because it requires a huge shift. So if you're a prime minister or a health minister who's probably only going to be in the post two or three years, you're not going to see the benefits of any strategy. So You get all the grief and none of the upside. Exactly. And what about the Labour Party? Because clearly there's a, you know, if you look at the polls, we could be heading for a Labour government. Are they clear that they're willing to take this on? Not really. Um, They've said... They've indicated they're a bit more willing to use state regulation than the Tories are. So that's some things like banning junk food advertising. They've said they'll go ahead with that. But they're also really worried about this cost of living crisis. And they also, you know, the Tories have laid a trap for them by saying they're not going to regulate it. If Labour come along and say, well, we'll ban all sugary breakfast cereal, then that's a really easy dividing line between the two parties, which you can then see turning into a war. So Labour, like to the disappointment of a lot of health charities and campaigners, have been fairly, um, they've held back a bit on on this side of policy. And I don't think we're going to see any major commitments from either party in their manifestos. And as a result, we seem to get sort of like little policies, which sort of nudge in this direction, like um, calorie counts on menus. Yes, you know, everyone is now aware of it. If you go to a restaurant, I think it's like it has to be a, a big chain or something rather than independent ones. Um, is there any evidence that that's going to make any difference? No, the irony is that the calorie counts on menus is one of the only policies that survived this obesity strategy that was mainly scrapped. And that's one that has very little scientific backing because actually as it came in, the science is increasingly saying calories are a bit of a pointless marker. Counting calories doesn't really make a difference to how obese you are it's more about the quality of the food and eating lots of vegetables and calories are not the same and but at that point then the calorie labeling came in so you know it shows that the government can act and it's one of the few policies that's actually been implemented successfully but it's probably not the one that people and doctors would would choose yeah yeah and also, I suppose, people are eating out. We're talking about cost of living crisis. Fewer people are eating out. So whether yeah. or not, you know, your, your once a week, once a fortnight, once a month meal out isn't necessarily the thing that's causing your, your health problems. It's really interesting as well. The research that we have on cal- calorie labelling shows that when you go out for the first few times, you really notice it and maybe pick a lower calorie option. But then once you get used to it a few weeks or months yeah. in, then you stop really looking at the Treat calories. Treat it as a target. Go for the absolutely <laughs> Yeah. And really good to see you. I don't know how you would time health you. cost one. Thanks so much for taking us through uh, the politics of all of that. Well, of course, we're moving away then from your, your occasional meal out. What about the weekly shop? Uh, what, what should 
the government will be doing, the role of the nanny state in your shopping basket. Richard Walker is executive chairman of Iceland and uh, joins me now. Hi, Richard. Hello. Good morning. Now, Richard, you joined, we, we, I came down to one of your stores for Food Week uh, last summer, last year, and you were talking then a lot about this tension between uh, people, you know, really, people who are really counting the pennies, and, you know, bluntly, that, that is your, your customer base. Yeah. You know, that's people are thinking about cost more than anything else, whether it's calories or healthy options or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think so. And look, you know, um, the, the the big issue that's staring us in the face here is is one of poverty. Um, healthy food needs to be made more accessible, uh, more affordable and more available. And I think what we need is systemic solutions, you know, giving people access to local shops. A lot of people live in food deserts because of cancelled bus routes and the like. Um Yes, we need to give them good food and also the skills that they need to feed their families well. It's not just a sledgehammer on one part of the problem. Um, is there a, a role for government, the nanny state, in sort of policing what goes on in your store? Or do you think that should be up to you as the person who runs the supermarket? I think it should be up to us. I mean, no surprise for me to say that. And supermarkets can do a lot. You know, we're, we're, we've worked with Marcus Rashford and the Food Foundation to promote Healthy Start and Best Start vouchers. We've uh, frozen, excuse the pun, hundreds of our value lines uh, at a pound or less, including frozen veg. I mean, we give away frozen veg almost for for 1p at certain times of year. And then we've invested in ranges like Slimming World, My Protein. You know, all of those things are, are good to do and the right things to do for our customers. We also need to look at how to sell things rather than how not to sell them. You know, we work with Southampton University to look at where to put the fruit and veg in our in our stores to encourage customers to buy more. But then we need to do other stuff. And, and this is where the government can come in, you know, fixing local planning legislation um, to work against this phenomenon of, of food deserts, education policy, um, to help um, the next generation of parents to have a, a good relationship with, with food. The problem um, when the government comes in and, and does things like trying to ban multi-buys, um, I, I just don't know, I've no idea how it can actually be enforced in the first place, other than a huge increase in the number of compliance officers um, employed by local authorities and the, the accompanying costs. And all all in, uh, bans on multi-buys will do is, is reduce choice, drive up costs, uh, reduce VAT revenues for the government. It will it, do nothing to help curb obesity. Um, and we should talk about the, the sort of the politics of this. Are you, is it you're still running to become a Conservative MP? Uh, well, I'm still on the list. Nothing's changed. I mean, I, I haven't really got anything to say on it. I, we're in a cost of living crisis, and I'm, you know, fully focused as I always am on on our our five million customers a week who obviously need me more than ever at the moment. I just wondered where you, where you placed yourself in quite. Uh, there's quite a broad spectrum in the Conservative Party from quite heavy interventionists, the nanny statists, if you like, who think the government should be going much further, and the libertarians who basically think that people should be left to make their own choices. And I just w sort of wondered where you were in the in the Conservative spectrum. Yeah, I, I mean, I've never been, um, you know, tear up the the rule book and and just 
completely leave the free market to its own devices. If you look at some of the existential issues facing us from climate change, for example, I, I do believe in intervention. I think it's right that the, that the government helps and supports uh, the transition to, to net zero. So I think there, there there is a place for it. But as ever, these things aren't, you know, they're, they're systemic and uh, we need to look at the, the full toolkit of solutions, not not just one element that might be populist, but, but will do nothing to help. Do you think that, that Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, Steve Barclay as Health Minister, are sufficiently... And I suppose, actually, to some extent, Therese Coffey's the food secretary are sufficiently gripped by the scale of the problem, both the cost of living crisis and the health crisis. One more, you know, immediate than the other. Um, well, I think the the cost of living crisis is the number one domestic issue facing our our country at the moment. And you know, I've I've talked about this a lot to you over the, over yeah. the last year or two. And you know, I just look at it through the lens of our customers because our 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 business is a barometer of Britain and we've got a thousand shops on every high street and we see the issue every single day, day in, day out. Some of our customers might only have 30 quid a week to spend uh, for their families. And you look at the um, the inflation that's going on through the system. We've obviously had uh, inflation almost touching 20% on food. Thankfully, it's starting to tail off now, but there's still still prices going up. There's still inflation on inflation. And that is a big issue for, for many people. We obviously work day and night to try and keep those costs at bay and not pass them on to our customers. But of course, everyone knows that the price of stuff has has gone up and and you know it, it is a, a real issue we are seeing interesting trends though people switching to frozen we, we've talked about that a lot we're promoting things like air fryers as a, like a lower cost healthier way of of cooking um and you know we, we're we've now got a mix and match deal across all our different ranges we're just trying to do everything we can to uh, loyalty cards, massive growth in loyalty cards and how people shop, um, free home delivery. All these different things are just trying to help our customers get through this cost of living squeeze. Uh, and what chance are you being an MP at the next election? Do you think? Oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think I think I've certainly got a hell of a lot to offer and uh, um, a lot of um, a lot of real world experience. Let's now speak to two people. One who thinks the government needs to overcome nanny state worries to improve Britain's health and one who opposes most regulation on food. Let's start with Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Mark, should the nanny state get out of the way or actually is there an, op- uh, uh, an option that the, that the state gets involved at the beginning and there's big savings to be made in the NHS later? Yeah, well, I'm a sceptic on this, Matt. I'm one of your libertarian, get-out-of-the-way type people, at least as a starting position. I'm certainly open to the idea that the state can provide information. Uh, I think it's sort of important that people aren't picking up packages of food, putting it in their shopping trolley and having sort of no idea what's in it. So I'm pretty relaxed, I guess, on on labelling. But I think this is morally a matter for personal responsibility, Uh, I think we should expect individual people to make their own informed choices, helping them with that information, helping educate them, fine. But the the rather sort of creepy thing that we've got to, I mean, all sorts of weird things. I mean, we've now banned supermarkets putting high-fat sugar or salt products either at the end of an aisle or near a checkout. The exact geographical placement of products in supermarkets is... Uh, now governed by the state. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Matt, there was this mad ban on an advertisement on the London Underground. You can't um, advertise unhealthy food on the London Underground. 
uh, the crazy thing was that there was a poster for a, a theatrical that featured a wedding cake on the poster, advertising on at the theatre. This was banned for fear that if people cast their eyes across this poster, I don't know, suddenly like Pavlov's dogs, they would sort of inevitably dash off to the nearest bakery and order a lot of cake. I think that's a rather patronising way of treating people. I'm also a bit sceptical about how well these things work. It sort of sounds logical, doesn't it? Let's impose a sugar tax and people will consume less sugar. Uh, let's ban things from advertising and people will consume less of it. But actually, evidentially, when you look back on these sort of interventions, they really have a remarkable lack of effect. So I understand the intention. Obviously, we want the population to be healthier. I don't like the hectoring element. And I think we need to be more honest about the fact that it probably doesn't do much good, all of these things. It's a bit sort of performative rather than real in terms of its health effects. Aren't we citing the realms, Mark, of where all political debates end up? People say, well, no, of course I think something should be done about this, but I just don't think we should be doing that. You know, we've seen the same thing with the green agenda. Of course we should be aiming for net zero, but not doing any of the things to get there. If we think that the nation is too fat, and that's putting a multi-billion pound cost on the NHS... Isn't there an imperative, therefore, to do the things that might address that? Even if, you know, that does end up mean dictating what you can and can't put near a checkout. I think this is a, a wider problem, Matt. The way that we uh, organise our healthcare in Britain means that the sort of the National Health Service is a Trojan horse for virtually everything, you know, because you're on the hook for my healthcare and I'm on the hook for your healthcare. Suddenly I can take an incredible interest in how Matt Chorley lives his life. So uh, do I have a right to know how much you drink? Are you getting enough exercise? No, Are you no. eating a healthy breakfast in the morning? No. Uh, how often do you go to the gym? <laughs> Never. Um, I want to know I want to know what you're eating for dinner tonight in case it makes you fatter and I'm on the hook for it. So I, I'm more would, I more would like us to look at how we can actually have more personal responsibility within the healthcare system rather than us all being on the hook for everybody's behaviour. Because that, that then acts as a way in which these rather impertinent and personal questions that I've just put to you seem justified. But I'd much rather Matt Chorley was responsible for his own life and consumption choices rather than me peering over your shoulder because I'm worried about my tax liability if you're not a good boy. Okay, let's now hear from uh, Dr Avik Bhattacharya, who's the Research Director of the Social Market Foundation. Uh, Avi, Mark makes a good point, doesn't he? That, that, you know, let's just let people have uh, personal responsibility and stop hectoring everyone all the time about what they can and can't do. I think the way that Mark has framed this and the way that it's often framed is that this is some sort of alien uh, kind of imposition on people, that it's something very obscure, the way that these forces influence our lives, that it's either down to personal choice or it's down to the big kind of arm of the state telling us what to do. And I think if we think about this, certainly if I think about this, and I suspect yourself and many of your listeners might, might empathise with this, if we think about the way we make our choices, they're as part of a, a framework of society, there's part of a structure. So if I think, if I want to eat fewer biscuits, if I have them in my line of sight versus if I have them away in a cupboard versus if I don't, if I don't buy them, if I don't go shopping when I'm hungry, if um, there aren't uh, kind of junk food stores on every corner, all of those things make it easier for me to make healthier choices. Um, I certainly have made choices where uh, I look back and I think, God, I wish I hadn't bought that and eaten all that food. Um, and I think hopefully that's a bit more kind of relatable than this idea of someone is going to tell you what to do or you get kind of free domain over your choice. And I think we can see that there are clearly a lot of people who are making um, choices that aren't 
um, kind of conducive to their health and well-being. When we think about two-thirds of people um, having obesity or, or being overweight, uh, when we think about million-plus uh, hospitalizations every year, and yes, we can talk about the cost to the public sector and talk about that as uh, a way into why we why we should care about this as a society. But you know, behind that six and a half billion pounds is um, a lot of suffering uh, and a lot of kind of needless um, ill health. Um, we can talk about that figure, but we could also talk about the gaps in life expectancy, the fact that life expectancy is stalling um, for the first time in decades. Um, we can talk about the fact that it's uh, about 18 years, the gap in healthy life expectancy between the richest and the mm. poorest. And all of these things, I think, are why we want to help people to make decisions, uh, to make choices, uh, to make it easier to make choices that help them live their best lives. I suppose the other thing, having is that this when this uh, some of the most enthusiastic people for uh, leaving the uh, reigning in the states, leaving people to get on and live their lives, actually want lower taxes. And actually, we could have lower taxes if it weren't for the NHS eating up so much money treating people because they're obese. Uh, yeah, potentially. I mean, this is a this is a big kind of uh, challenge, fiscal challenge coming down the down, coming down the road in terms of having an aging society, in terms of having a sicker society and the cost that that entails. Um, there's also questions about uh, how we can best raise the revenue to fund, to fund the state. And um, I'm sure Mark will say there's, there's no taxes that he likes. Most people will say there's no taxes that they particularly like. But it is striking that taxes on unhealthy commodities, certainly on tobacco, um, to some extent on alcohol, um, and um, kind of newer taxes around unhealthy foods are less popular. So people, people don't like any taxes, but if they say we've got to tax something, then these are quite high up the list these um these these products that have these mm. negative consequences that are very tangible to people well let me just ask mark about that mark is, is the problem where the, the the tax system is being used to change behavior yeah a bit i mean i've got some sympathy with what we've just heard um uh, if you're gonna have the nhs and i'd like to radically reform it i can see that you can make a case well people who choose to smoke cigarettes are causing some cost to the national health service but in fact, we've gone way, way beyond that. I mean, if you were to take smokers or drinkers, they're contributing more in tax than their net cost on the NHS. So it's a sort of punitive moral tax now. It's not just saying, oh, well, if you want to smoke a cigar and uh, drink a bottle of whiskey, we need to claw back the amount that that might cost the NHS. Way beyond it. I mean, if you're going to uh, act fairly, smokers should be at the front of the queue of the NHS, given how much they subsidise non-smokers. So I've got a bit of sympathy with what economists call internalising the externality. If Matt Chorley's going to do something that's going to cost the taxpayer a pound, maybe put a pound on the price that Matt Chorley needs to face to do it. But don't put five pounds on the, on the price to do it. And although health is vitally important, hugely important thing for people, of course it is, it's not the absolute ace of trumps all the time. It is okay to make decisions that you find enjoyable and pleasurable that perhaps aren't optimum for your health. Uh, we, we aren't just designed to live as long and healthy as we can. Sometimes we want an extra glass of wine or to smoke a cigar or to have an extra slice of sugary cake. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to live your life. This rather puritanical view that uh, actually sort of all that matters is that you're 100% focused on being slim, fit and healthy all yeah. the time. And any action you take in the opposite direction is to be frowned upon and penalised. I don't think really speaks to the joy of human existence very much, does it?
Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, and uh, Dr. Avik Bhattacharya, the Research Director of the Social Market Foundation. Loads of you, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Loads of you have been getting in touch. Dan says, the term personal responsibility has unfortunately been considered a dirty one since March 2020. Uh, that was when it demonstrated what happens when you give the state unparalleled power of people's lives. Sadly, this is only going one way. Dan, a fearful libertarian. Uh, Noel says, we have many laws to protect the quality of food. Some more to prevent obesity is a logical extension. Uh, James says, sorry Matt, but never expect the general population to apply common sense to health choices. The general popula population has common sense in short supply. The cost of diabetes is unsustainable. State intervention is a necessary evil. And uh, on the email, uh, Sarah's been in touch saying, as long as the British public expects the NHS to pay for absolutely everything when it comes to their health, they should understand the government wanted to have a say in that state of health. Uh, thanks so much. Lots and lots and lots of you getting in touch uh, with us uh, today. Today, as we took a look at the United State, the United Nanny State that we're in. Whatever. It's not about the nanny state. And I'm like, whatever. Nanny state. The nanny state. Nanny state policy. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm not normally a believer in nannying or bossying type of, uh, of, of politics, but the reality is that obesity is one of the real comorbidity factors. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Because this is my United States of whatever. And this is my United States of whatever. And this is my United States. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any top quality food week content for the rest of this week. But for now, from me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.